thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, and welcome to this week's Naked Scientist, and that's with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. And also with me, I'm Chris Smith. Now, coming up this week, scientists have discovered the world's largest web-spinning spider, and believe you me, it really is a giant. We'll find out quite how big in just a second. Also, on the subject of spiders, scientists have discovered what makes their web so sticky and how we might be able to copy the trick. That's coming up. And why some sounds are painful. Scientists have identified a nerve cell in your ears that can signal when things might be getting just a bit too loud. Perhaps that's the sign you should turn it down. We'll be finding out how those work and making some noise about that last story in just a moment. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're lifting the lid on the brain and how it can go wrong. We'll be looking at the workings of the gene that causes Huntington's disease, hearing about a new approach scientists are taking to vaccinate people against multiple sclerosis, and we'll be seeing all about the new genes that are helping us to understand what causes Alzheimer's disease. Plus, we've got terrific brain-related kitchen science experiment for you today. You can have a go yourself. When I say go, I need you to step forward and just relax your arms completely. So, you ready? Go. Okay. <laughs> My hand. Okay, that's quite cool. Hmm, <laughs> very intriguing. Well, if you want to know what was going on there, what Ben was doing to Mira's arms, we'll be with him. He'll be with, he'll be with us shortly, and he'll be revealing everything all about the arms. Thank you, Helen. And that experiment really is dead easy to do. All you need is yourself and a convenient wall or a doorway to have a go. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address for us here at The Naked Scientist, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, first up this week, Halloween is approaching. And what better story to get us in the spooky mood than the discovery of the world's largest web-spinning spider. Now, this record-breaker, named Nephila komaki, is a type of golden orb weaver spider, and it's found in Africa and Madagascar. And the females have bodies that are around four centimetres long. That's about an inch and a half. Maybe the size of your thumb, perhaps. No, a bit bigger than that. Pretty big. And their legs, believe it or not, stretch to around 12 centimetres. So I think that's a good hand span it really would sit nicely the legs the are 12 centimeters each. in span no that's a span so this is it basically if you put your hand out i think that's what you're looking at it's about a spider as big it's, as your hand really quite large so how big are the webs the bit the webs about me about can go a to about meter. a meter yeah there's a, i don't think we've actually we don't know exactly how big these particular species can grow if it's Gosh. bigger than the rest of them but certainly about a meter is what most what, what do they catch spies. birds humans <laughs> don't go near i think smaller than that mostly but um but they're not the biggest spiders in the world can you imagine what the biggest actual spiders not well, the, well obviously i mean tarantulas yes. can, can individually weigh I mean, half huge. a kilo or something. They're, I mean, huge. they're huge, but spiders. they don't—they don't make webs. So Although they do they... make silk, don't they? Because I was talking to a guy over in California a few years ago. He actually discovered that some of these tarantulas do make silk, and they produce it from the tips of their 
feet. And oh. they actually make little bits of dragline silk, which gives them additional purchase on a slidey surface. And they discovered this accidentally by putting a spider on some flat glass, tilting the glass up, and then going to have a cup of tea. <laughs> and, and when they came back, the spider had slid a little bit down the glass and when they looked at the glass surface there were tiny threads there and the spinnerets on the back of the spider are in fact vestigial legs and the, and the glands that make the threads are the remains of those original thread producers from what would have been legs and the spiders so abandoned the legs, legs and just yes they did have more legs fantastic. probably well that's fantastic anyway well I think the goliath bird eating tarantula is meant to be the biggest one that lives in South America but they don't make webs anyway and this new discovery um, came from Machas Kunter from the Slovenian Acad- Academy of Sciences and Arts and Jonathan Coddington from the Smithsonian National History Museum of Natural History in Washington in DC and they published this in the journal PLOS One this week and for a long while they actually thought this species um, could well have been actually extinct. This specimen that was first discovered in 1978 was the only one for a long long time so they thought probably it was extinct or maybe it was a hybrid of some other species and that there weren't any more out there in the world and these two guys really wanted to find these spiders. They went out on expeditions um, to South Africa but they just didn't find any of them and they went searching through museum specimens over two and a half thousand specimens were searched and they still didn't find another one of these enormous um, web-weaving spiders. Um, But eventually another specimen did turn up, one from Madagascar and then a couple more from South Africa. And that really did confirm that this is indeed a new species. And it adds a list of... um, another species of spider, to around 41,000 that we know of currently, um, spiders in the world. And apparently every year about four or 500 are added. So I don't know when we're ever going to stop finding new spiders, but that's, oh, so that's a lot, lot of spiders, isn't it? It's a lot of spiders. They're an amazing group of animals. And... Um, and obviously it's very important discovery for biodiversity. For spider biodiversity, we found this fantastic big chap. But it also um, is really interesting when people want to study things about why certain animals get very big. In particular, it's the females of this spider that are very much bigger than the males, up to five times bigger. And part of the paper in PLOS One um, it describes, um, they looked at the family tree of these, um, these orb-weaving spiders and found that it's actually an African branch in which it's the females have progressively got bigger over time. So they think now we can really start to understand more about why sometimes females are so much bigger than males. And um, they're actually really keen for other scientists to go out and try and find these spiders. They're only known from one place that they've been found alive, and that's in the Tembe Elephant Park in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. So, you know, get out there, have a look for great big spiders, a rare wonder indeed, and a treat for Halloween, I think. Amazingly big. That puts a whole new spin on the meaning food web, doesn't it, when you have something that's a metre across. Incidentally, I think the reference from memory for the tarantulas making... Uh, threads of silk from their feet. I think it's Adam Summers who works in the University of California, San Diego. I think that's where he's based. It was a nature paper in about 2006, I believe. Now, also this week, and talking about the journal Nature, there's a, a wonderful paper from Paul Fuchs, who's uh, a researcher at Johns Hopkins. And he and his team have discovered uh, that there are cells inside the cochlea, the part of the inside of the ear which converts sound waves into brain waves, which is uh, able to signal painful sounds. Now that's not just when you're listening to a particularly abrasive soundtrack and you say, ouch, that's painful to my ears. We're talking very loud sounds. Now what they did was to study 
the connection between the cochlea, this organ that has cells called hair cells that vibrate, and when they vibrate they make electrical signals, well, most of those signals get transmitted in a population of nerves straight into the brain and the brain decodes them. But about 5% of the nerves don't connect up to those hair cells in the same way. They seem to do another job, but no one really understood what they did. And what this group managed to do was, using young rats, to study some of these individual tiny nerve cells by opening them up with a microscope and then putting an electrode inside the nerve cell and recording the electrical activity and also putting some dye inside the cell so they could then study how it was connected to other cells. And what they found is that this cell responds to a nerve transmitter chemical called glutamate, which is an excitatory chemical. And when the hair cells that, re that respond to sound put some glutamate out, they stimulate this kind of cell, but they only produce enough when the sounds must be incredibly loud right across a whole range of different frequencies. So what these cells seem to signal is when sounds are excruciatingly loud to the point of actually potentially being damaging or harmful to you. So on the one hand, you'd think, well, why do I need to know the sound is very loud and damaging me? I, I should know that already. But the point that the researchers make and that other commentators have said is that perhaps this is a way for the brain being able to discriminate between sounds that are very, very loud and harmful or likely to signal there's danger in the offing and sounds that are very, very loud but perhaps not dangerous. Perhaps the wiring in the brain from these small cluster of nerve cells is slightly different. Another thing they, they discovered is that these cells are responsive to a chemical called ATP, purine and this usually gets released when tissue is physically damaged so some scientists are suggesting that perhaps this discovery shows that the brain has a sort of error checking system in the hearing system it can use these nerve cells to check the health of the inner ear and therefore know how to respond to sounds appropriately but why this is really exciting is that no one ever knew and understood what this system did now we've got a way to study it this might give us ways or an insight into hearing disorders, including tinnitus, which is when people experience this very disabling, annoying whistling in the ears. So understanding how the nerve cells actually connect in the ear could be really crucial to understanding why tinnitus develops and perhaps even better how we can get to treat it. There you go. So turn down your headphones, I think, is the, one of the things we all must do. But I'm going to take us back to the oceans and a really bizarre connection between some fantastic creatures called mantis shrimps, which have um, the most sophisticated eyes in the animal kingdom. And a brand new paper that's just hot off the press um, from a team of scientists who are examining just what lies behind those amazing eyes. And they've uncovered some tricks of nature that could find applications at the cutting edge of modern technology. And they might even spawn a new generation of DVDs and CDs. Well, last year, a paper in the journal... CD. Sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, last year, a paper in the journal Current Biology announced the discovery that mantis shrimps can see both linear polarised and circular polarised light. And now a team led by Ro um, Nicholas Roberts from the University of Bristol here in the UK have discovered that mantis shrimps do this using a special light-sensitive cell area of cells in their eyes that act as a device known as a quarter wave plate. And essentially these plates convert circular polarised light into linear polarised light. And man-made quarter wave plates are vital components of DVD players and some camera filters. But they don't work nearly as well as the ones that have evolved in the eyes of mantis shrimps. Why not? Well, first of all, I think we need to get to the bottom very quickly about linear and circular polarised light. Normal light behaves like a wave and it vibrates in all different directions and linear polarised light only moves in one plane. Um, circular polarised light moves in a helix and it can go... And it, the amazing thing about shrimp, mantis shrimps is 
they can detect the difference between light, circular polarised light that goes left or right in this kind of helix. You can imagine it's sort of moving through space. So that's what's going on here. And the reason that, uh, well, the, re- the ultimate reason why the mantis shrimps do this well is because it's evolved through natural selection to perfectly be able to do this. You might ask, why do they need to see these lights? Indeed, what's, why, what's, it, what's it do for them? Um, it's a great question and a couple of different theories here. One is that where they live, which tends to be on coral reefs and shallow, bright water, there's lots of polarised light bouncing around in that environment, including off lots of things that they eat, which are things like fish. Um, the silvery scales of fish do reflect polarised light. So being able to see that is good. Even clever, and I think this is fantastic, is what they discovered before in, in that um, earlier paper last year, was that parts of the mantis shrimp bodies actually reflect circular polarised light. But we don't think there's anything else in the animal kingdom that can see circular polarised light. So it's so a way of almost, finding each other. They've almost got this secret yeah. way of communicating, which is fabulous. So this could be why they need this. Um, the eyes work on a very small scale. It's the sort of micro-engineering, nano-engineering that nature can do, that humans can't do so well. But perhaps now we can learn a thing or two from the mantis shrimps and, and uh, produce better... Um, optical devices in the future but it's just they're such great creatures when you I've seen them in the wild mantis shrimps and you can see their eyes looking at you and wondering because they've got trinocular vision it's, in each eye it's extraordinary and you just wonder what do I look like to the mantis shrimp <laughs> I was in a garden centre today uh, looking at the fish swimming around in the aquarium section and there was this spider crab sitting under a sort of log underwater and it was looking at me and I always think that you know what, when they're looking at you with these eyes I mean, what, what are they actually what seeing they what see? do they make of the person on the other side of the exactly, glass exactly. in my case probably they think I'd rather that person wasn't there. <laughs> uh, well, also in the news this week, scientists at the University of Wyoming have identified what it is that can make spider webs so sticky and the genes that spiders use to actually make them. And knowing this could bring us a step closer, maybe even a spider step, I don't know, to making our own spider-based glues. And to tell us a bit more about how they're doing this is Dr Randy Lewis, who's at the University of Wyoming. Hello, Randy. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, so how are you, first of all, identifying these genes that spiders use to make their webs, webs so sticky? Well, we took uh, webs, about 100 of them actually, and washed the glue off of those webs. Then we separated the proteins that make up that glue. And uh, using some chemical tricks, we were able to uh, get some evidence of the uh, proteins that were in there. And then we did a, a mass spectrometry study of all the peptides to find those and then uh, use that information to go back to the spider itself and identify which were the genes that were involved in making the spider silk proteins. I see. So because we know the genetic code, we can basically say, well, we know what the protein sequence is that's in the spider stickiness that we've washed off the web. So we can work out what gene sequences probably went into making those proteins. So if we then go back to the spider spinneret, I guess, the structure that, that makes the silk, and ask can we find any genes like the, what we think the sequence will be in there, then you've got a chance of finding them. Right, and especially in this case, because all the glue comes from a specialized gland. So you can actually just go directly to that gland and not worry about uh, other kinds of genes because the predominant uh, genes that are being made or being used in that gland are going to be for the, the spider silk glue. And presumably the, the glue isn't just one particular protein. It must be a, a cocktail. In this case, uh, we believe it's two proteins, actually, and one of them looks like uh, more like a silk protein, uh, the regular silk proteins. The other one actually looks like what we call a mucin protein, which makes up slime uh, and snot. So our, uh, our combination is, is that it's really a silk and snot protein, 
and the two of them together provide both strength and stickiness. I think spiders would probably be mortified if they realised that uh, you were calling their web stickiness as snotty. Uh, but is it possible to do what the spider does in its back end in a test tube? In other words, can you borrow from biology? Can you copy this effectively? We're in the process of defining whether we can do that or not, but we believe we can because the proteins are actually very simple and we need to find a system that can reproduce that. And we believe that if we can get those genes into some insect cells that grow in culture, that those cells should be able to produce the proteins with the sticky uh, parts on them. Uh, the key here is, is that one of the proteins in particular has a whole lot of sugars put on it. And you need to be able to have those sugars, we're fairly sure, in order to be able to get the stickiness. So we believe that using something like insect cells to start with, we can reproduce what the spider has and, and then actually test the, the material and see how well it performs. And that's presumably because insect cells, evolutionarily speaking, are much closer to a spider than, say, one of our cells will be, and therefore they're likely to have the right chemistry going on in the cells to add those, those sticky sugar molecules. Right. And also it turns out that insect cells are fairly easy to work with, so we think that in inserting the, the genetic code from the spiders uh, also probably will fit better with the insect cells. And if you are successful in making this happen, what will you be able to do with this glue? Well, right now we're not exactly sure, but we think that there certainly are a possibility for some biomedical applications for closing uh, on sutures, uh, things like that. Other places you might be able to uh, use glue. Um, we're also hopeful, and it remains to be seen, that you can use it something like epoxy, and that is that the two components separately won't, be, uh, won't give you the, the real stickiness and that when we put the two together, um, you'll have a glue, and that's also very useful in a number of applications. So you can, can basically put it together and then have it be sticky, and separately they're just fine. And lastly, Randy, I understand that you're currently heading across Canada to rescue some goats. What's that all about? Uh, well, basically, um, a company that we work with, Nexia Biotechnologies, developed some transgenic goats that make the spider silk proteins in the milk. And uh, the company has, uh, for all intents and purposes, gone under and so we're uh, right now uh, about 20 miles from the farm, and this afternoon we're going to go and prepare the goats. We'll pick them up tomorrow morning and bring them back to Wyoming so we can preserve the, uh, the genetics of those goats that, that have been, uh, been made because the company can't afford to keep them anymore, and uh, we're going to move them down to Wyoming and, and keep the genes going and, and uh, actually use the milk to produce uh, protein now where we can really get serious about looking at various kinds of products from it. And one wonders what that milk would taste like. Randy, thank you very much for joining us on The Naked Scientist. That was Dr Randy Lewis, who's at the University of Wyoming. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking this week about brain diseases and how genetics is telling us and informing us about some of the most important brain degenerative diseases that are currently out there on the block. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. And now it's time for Kitchen Science. So let's go across to Ben Valsler to explain what we need to do this week. I'm sorry to say that this week Dave Ansell is actually in bed with the flu, leaving me to handle Kitchen Science all on my own. But luckily I'll be joined later on by Mira Senthalingam, who will help me demonstrate an old experiment that I've known about since I was very little, where you can fool your brain into making your body do something very strange. It's a really simple one to try out at home, so do please give it a go. All you'll need is a doorway and your arms. So, find a doorway, stand in the middle of the doorway facing into the room, and drop your arms down by your side. 
Then press the backs of your hands against the doorframe and push. And push and push and push. You need to push for about a minute. It'll start to hurt. It'll feel very uncomfortable. But you need to keep going. And after a minute, all you need to do is step forward and relax your arms. Let us know what happens to your arms and I'll be back later in the show. So, to please give it a go. And I'm quite tempted myself, but I don't know if my uh, headphones will reach the door. <laughs> so, anyway, let us know There's what happens. Excuse. <laughs> You'll have to let me know what happens when you try it at home. So, uh, yes, anything unusual happen to your arms? We'd like to know. If you'd like to get in touch with that or any questions at all, drop us a tweet to at Naked Scientists or the email address to get your questions and comments in is chris at thenakedscientist.com. I heard from Growing Southern on Twitter, talking of tweeting at us, at Naked Scientists. Uh, Growing Southern says, if you cut your skin, it can regenerate, but after a stroke or a brain injury, you can't replace neurons. Why is that? Well, the answer is that the brain has uh, an architecture, which is what's called post-mitotic. There are only a few restricted areas in the brain and central nervous system where there are new nerve cells being born. For the most part, you rely on the complement of nerve cells that you were born with, and which continued to divide for a very short window after you were born and then stopped. So basically what you're born with is what you have to make last a lifetime. And there's a reason for that, because if brain cells were dividing all over the place, remember that brain cells have long connections that they make from one cell to the other. And those connections are crucial to you being able to do the right thing, say the right thing, have memories, and for your brain to be able to work properly. If those cells were dividing all over the place and making aberrant connections, then it would be very, very difficult to preserve that architecture. So there's kind of method in the madness. And the problem is that as that is a fixed structure, it's very hard to repair it by getting the cells to redivide. Because basically, if you have an injury, evolutionarily speaking, that's bad enough to destroy a part of your brain or your nervous system, the chances are you'd be dead anyway. So we haven't really evolved the ability to repair the brain and spinal cord. In some animals, though, that can happen. And things like goldfish, lampreys, and also even salamanders can restore whole limbs, bits of their nervous system. If you take the eye out of a frog, turn it round and put it back in again, it will rewire itself back into the brain, only because the eye is now upside down. The animal sees the world upside down and it does the wrong thing. If you hold a fly in front of it, instead of jumping forward at the fly, it jumps backwards and takes a bite out of the deck. And, and that won a Nobel Prize for Roger Sperry a few years ago and proves that some animals can regenerate their nervous system, but certainly not us, unfortunately. Now, uh, one of the most important neurological diseases on the block at the moment is one called Huntington's disease. It affects about eight in every 100,000 people here in the UK. It's a genetic disorder and people tend to get the disease symptoms by the time they're aged about 40 or 50 and it has impacts on people's ability to move correctly. It can also impair um, the way in which the brain functions and in the later stages especially and people are currently trying to work out why the disease occurs, why people get the symptoms they do and whether we can actually reverse or at least arrest the process and uh, one of the scientists who's working on Huntington's disease is Dr Ed Wilde and he's based at University College London's Institute of Neurology and he's also interested in how the disease affects the functioning of the immune system and what role that might play in the disease. He's with us now. Hello Ed. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Uh, first of all, can you just explain a little bit about what we understand of the, the background of the genetics of Huntington's disease? Yeah, sure. Well, we're quite lucky in Huntington's disease research because the genetics is quite well worked out. and um, We've known what the gene is that causes HD uh, since 1993 after a massive international uh, research collaboration to look for it. Um, and that, uh, in many ways, puts us at a bit of an advantage um, over other brain diseases like Alzheimer's, which we'll be hearing about later on, 
motor neuron disease, Parkinson's disease, where there are genes that are known to influence the disease, but uh, in Huntington's disease, we know exactly what gene causes it. Um, there, it has two names. One is the Huntington gene, um, and the other is IT15, which uh, stood for Interesting Transcript 15, which is perhaps the genetic understatement of the 90s. Um, and this is a, a gene that encodes for a protein called Huntington. Um, so the gene is the recipe for this Huntington protein. Uh, we've known about this now for 16 years. Um, we know a lot of things that the Huntington protein does, um, but it's still a very mysterious protein. It's a very big protein, and it's one that's very difficult to work with. Do we um, understand at all about why it is that, that it causes the very discrete symptoms it does? I mentioned some of them. People with Huntington's, first of all, tend to, to notice that their movements go a bit awry, and then they start to get other symptoms as well. And this takes up to 40 years before it manifests itself. So why is that, and why are there these very discrete changes to people's um, movements and behaviour? Well, what we do know about HD is that uh, the, what the bit of the brain that's affected earliest... Um, at least as far as we can tell, looking at it under microscopes or with brain scans, is the basal ganglia. Um, and those are the sort of deep grey matter structures uh, down in the brain that have very important stop-go and coordinating functions um, for movements. Um, and so one of the characteristic features of Huntington's is a, f a phenomenon called chorea, which is from the Greek word for dancing. It's where we get the word choreography from. Um, and that's because patients with HD almost invariably get these unusual dancing-like movements, involuntary movements of the arms and legs and face. Um, on top of that, though, they get uh, problems with voluntary movements. They lose their voluntary movements, a bit like what you see in Parkinson's disease. Is this because they're actually physically losing brain cells? And if so, what's going on in the cells that are dying? Why are they dying? Well, that's the, the million-dollar question for HD families. We know lots of things that are going on, but at the moment there's no clear uh, consensus on what the most important uh, function of the Huntington protein is that makes the cells die. What we're certain about, though, is that the cells are unhappy or dysfunctional for many years before they die. Um, and that's good news because it means if we can reverse that dysfunction, we could potentially prevent patients who we know have the mutation from going on to uh, develop the disease. Um, but uh, exactly, you know, what the, what the uh, processes are that are going on in the cells, there are, we know that there are lots of them, um, but, uh, you know, exactly what, uh, what the balance of problems is is unclear at the moment. Interestingly, not all brain cells seem to be vulnerable to the same extent, though, do they? So do we know why some cells seem to perish and, and others are less affected? No, that's a, that's a really important question. And as I say, we know that the cells of the basal ganglia, the striatum, uh, are selectively involved early on. What's weird, though, is that those aren't necessarily the cells where, under the microscope, you see the most uh, accumulation of the abnormal Huntington protein. That's seen throughout the brain, but the striatum doesn't seem to display a lot of that. Um, and there are various theories as to why this might be. Uh, probably the most popular theory is that those cells receive a lot of inputs um, from uh, other areas of brain. So those are incredibly busy cells, very metabolically active cells, uh, and they're connected to a lot of other cells. And it may well be that um, there's a phenomenon called excitotoxicity going on, um, where the cells get too many inputs, and that tips them over into the balance of not being able to cope because they were ha unhappy already because of having the abnormal protein floating around. But there's another theory, which is that 
um, and this goes to the heart of the, the mutation that causes HD. It, it's unlike other mutations where it's a single spelling mistake, you know, changing one uh, DNA uh, letter to another. This is a, 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 gen a genetic mutation in which one word, one three-letter word, C-A-G, is repeated again and again and again uh, too many times, and that causes the uh, protein to take on an abnormal shape. And uh, the striatum does seem to contain cells with even more abnormal repeats than the rest of the brain, and that may be one reason why um, it has this selective vulnerability early on in the disease. And looking outside the brain, you're interested in the immune system because, of course, this gene isn't just turned on in the brain. It's turned on in other cells in the body too. So how does it affect immune function? Well, that's right. The, the, the gene and the protein have been uh, found to be expressed basically everywhere that they've been looked for. Um, and what we did was uh, to look in the blood of HD patients. We're looking for biomarkers, things that can be used to measure from the outside what's happening to a patient's brain on the inside. And we need basically accessible tissues. You can't go diving into someone's brain. So we look in blood to see if we can find changes due to the gene. And what we found quite surprisingly, we weren't really looking for it, but what we stumbled on almost was a, a signature of immune activation that the cells, that the, the blood um, of HD patients contains a signature of cytokine proteins that suggests that the patient is in a sort of chronic inflammatory state. The immune system's overactive. And we did a bit of detective work to try and figure out what the relationship was between the gene that causes the disease and the cytokine production. And we think that we've uh, identified that the, it's actually the white blood cells which are expressing the gene um, and that, that, that in some way makes them overactive. They become hyperactive, um, and we've detected that in the blood. Meanwhile, um, uh, our collaborators uh, in uh, Washington and in, in the U.S. have been looking at expression of these cytokine proteins in brain and found that they're overexpressed in HD brain as well. So there seems to be a sort of commonality between the brain and the blood there. And, and just to finish, Ed, uh, does that mean then potentially that some of the pathology could be because the immune system is attacking cells and making the situation worse, or, or it could be triggering the cells to, to become diseased, or is this just literally a, a red herring? The immune system has these useful predictive markers that tell you what the state of the brain is, but they're not in themselves bound up with what's going wrong with the brain. I think at the very least it, it, it suggests that these might be useful as markers, but I think, t to be honest, I think there is more to it than that because um, uh, the, uh, a number of people have looked at uh, trying to adjust the immune system in HD in the brain and have produced some very promising results showing that if you can damp down certain pathways in involving the, the microglial cells, the immune cells of the brain, you can produce quite a dramatic survival effect on HD mice. So it seems that the... The, the microglial, the immune cells of the brain, are, are acting as, as policemen, which are having a useful effect early on in the disease, but later on are sort of becoming a, a rather unruly bunch of riot policemen uh, hitting innocent civilians in the face and doing more harm than good. Let's hope they don't introduce kettling in Huntington's disease. Thank you very much. That's Dr Ed Wilde, who's at the Institute of Neurology at University College London, where he's working on Huntington's disease. Thanks, Ed. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. Still to come, we'll be finding out how genes get involved in Alzheimer's disease and also Ben will show you how you can trick your brain. Don't forget, you have to go up to a doorway or a wall, push outwards with your arm really, really hard and then walk away. He'll be revealing a bit more about that later. Meanwhile, Helen... 
multiple sclerosis or MS and it's a condition in which nerves in the brain undergo a process known as demyelination. This is where a layer that surrounds nerve fibres called the myelin sheath which protects nerves and helps them to transmit information becomes damaged and this in turn can lead to all sorts of symptoms that include impaired movement, vision, sensation and cognition. And the cause of the damage to the myelin is the immune system. For some reason it fails to tell friend from foe and begins to attack the body's own brain tissue. This is known as autoimmune But it's been known for 100 years that that we can desensitise the immune system by presenting it with tiny doses of the thing that it's overreacting to. And doctors use this trick today to treat patients with allergies to things like peanuts. More recently, researchers at Bristol University have found that it can be used to damp down MS and also reduce some of the damage that it does. Ben Valsler went to meet Professor David Wraith to find out more. What we have realised is that by designing fragments of the target for attack in the autoimmune disease, we can focus our attention on a subset of immune cells called the T-cells. And as such, you can avoid the risks of anaphylaxis or autoimmune disease exacerbation by focusing in on the parts of the antigen that the T-cells recognise. And we have shown that administration of these peptide fragments can lead to desensitization of both the allergic and the autoimmune state in experimental models that we run in the laboratory. And we've recently expanded this or extended this into clinical trials in man. Usually with a vaccine against a pathogen, something like the flu, you would administer a dead version of the virus and that would present the surface proteins to your immune system And that means your immune system can be primed to attack these surface proteins when it recognises them. So you've been able to isolate the active parts of the proteins that only the T cells react to. And this means that you don't get the overblown immune reaction that could lead to anaphylaxis. But actually, actually, Ben, it's, it's more subtle than that. Because the other thing we've learned is that the immune system is actually a fine balance between those what we call effector cells that is designed to battle against the pathogen, but also the sort of military policemen who regulate those soldiers that are out there battling against the pathogens. And what the military policemen are there to do is really to sort of dampen down and control the immune system. I mean, when I was talking about this to a BBC reporter some years ago, it was around the time of the first Gulf War, and he said to me, you know, autoimmunity sounds to me just like friendly fire. It's where the immune system is designed to fight off enemies, but occasionally things go wrong and it starts attacking its own folks, right? And in a way, that's true. But what we've now learned since then is that there are other mechanisms designed to dampen down those sort of pathogen-clearing T-cells. And if you look in parasitic infections, the cells that we're designing our vaccines, our peptides, to induce are in fact present there and are preventing the immune system over attacking the response to the parasite. And this is why one of the mechanisms that has allowed parasites to evolve to live along with man. So whereabouts are you in the trials so far? We've just conducted a small phase one stroke two clinical trial and the regulatory authorities asked us to conduct this in patients suffering from quite severe MS already. So one wasn't expecting any dramatic change in the condition of these individuals. 
really, when you do a safety trial, you're primarily trying to prove that the approach you're taking and the treatment is safe and well tolerated. And indeed, this was the case. There was one individual in the trial who was suffering from severe loss of visual acuity and almost was clinically blind in one eye. And through the course of the treatment, her vision completely recovered. And this is very, very encouraging. Obviously, one has to do much more extensive trials to prove that this is a more general phenomenon. And of course, knowing what we know about multiple sclerosis, I think everybody would accept that this is just the type of disease where you need to start treating as early as possible. So our next trial will be a much more extensive trial in patients at an earlier stage of disease. Increasingly with medicine, we're looking at treatments for an individual, knowing that everybody is genetically unique. Genes we know code for proteins, and it's parts of proteins that you're hoping to encourage the immune system with. Mm -hmm. So could it possibly be that everybody will respond differently? And this may be an enormous task of finding exactly which bits of which genes code for which bits of which proteins in order to successfully make a vaccine. Well, I think that's one of the, the points about autoimmune diseases that we really do understand. There is a genetic contribution to these diseases. But actually of that, the major genetic contribution or predisposition to disease comes from a set of genes called the human HLA genes or the histocompatibility complex genes. And these are the genes that code for proteins that are the receptors for the fragments that we're talking about. So in fact, whereas something around 25% of the population express the particular HLA molecule that we're targeting, around 70% of MS patients carry that receptor. So indeed, our vaccine, if you wish to call it that, would be expected to be effective in about 70% of the MS sufferers, in the UK at least. But in fact, there is a good deal of cross-binding or cross-reactivity between the particular HLA molecules that we're targeting. So one would expect it to be effective in over 90% of people. That was Bristol University's Professor David Wraith, who was explaining to Ben Vowsler how carefully designed and selected bits of proteins, peptide fragments, can be used to tune the immune system and stop it from attacking itself. And that can be used to damp down the flare-ups that people who've got multiple sclerosis and perhaps other autoimmune diseases actually suffer from. Helen. Now, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, mostly in the elderly, and a great deal of research is underway to understand, treat and try and prevent Alzheimer's. But there are currently no effective treatments for it. Now, Professor Julie Williams and her team at Cardiff University recently discovered a pair of genes that seem to be linked to Alzheimer's. And she joins us now. Hello, Julie. Hello, Helen. Thanks for coming along on the show. Um, First of all, just what causes Alzheimer's? Well, Alzheimer's is caused by genetic and non-genetic factors. Uh, We know that there are three genes already that that, um, uh, contribute to and cause rare forms of Alzheimer's disease uh, and one gene that uh, increases uh, risk of developing the common form of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And that's the position we were at before we published our research. And do we know what's going on inside the brain? 
when people have Alzheimer's? What's what's the problem there? Well, we know there are certain sort of markers of the disease. So you see in the brains of, of Alzheimer's cases uh, plaques that are made up of uh, what we call beta amyloid mainly, and these occur outside the dying brain cells. Within these brain cells that are dying, uh, you see tangles made up of microtubules. So those are the two markers there. But what exactly is going on is still a basic mystery for us. So we have these plaques of of beta amyloid and that's a type of protein, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And do we have any idea now what these how these genes now might be involved um, in those markers, those those plaques that we're finding in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Okay, the rare forms, uh, the forms that um, uh, can, are contributed to by, by single gene defects, these occur in genes uh, known as APP and the presinolins. These, we know, affect uh, the amount of beta amyloid that occurs in, in, uh, in the brains. But what we, uh, we don't know is, uh, is that the same process for those with the more common form of Alzheimer's disease? And our results will uh, actually tend to support uh, a different, slightly different process uh, involved in common Alzheimer's disease compared to the rare forms that we've known about for some years. So what do, what do we think is going on in that common form of, of Alzheimer's? OK, well, it, it, what, um, what our research has shown is that uh, we, we identified two new genes that increase risk of developing common Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this, uh, the, the genes are clustrin, and PICOM. And when we put our data, our study together with a French study, we we now have um, definitely three new genes and and an additional fourth new genes, a fourth new gene. And and this is opening up new ideas about what actually causes the more common form of Alzheimer's disease. And how did you find that association? Did you go out and? look at people who've got Alzheimer's and look at the genes they have and compare that amongst a population and discover the sort of unique genes that, that might lead to the condition? That's exactly right. But it, it was a quite a large experiment. We, we looked at the genes of 4,000 individuals uh, with Alzheimer's disease and compared over half a million individual variations in each of those individuals uh, and compared those to 8,000 individuals without Alzheimer's disease. So this is the biggest study of its type currently published. And do we have any idea what these genes normally do and, and you know, what might be going wrong um, in the people who've got Alzheimer's? Okay, I mean, these genes, uh, some of these genes are involved in, in uh, the, a theme <laughs> that's developing in this program of inflammation, which, uh, which is, is uh, surprised us to some extent. Um, so the complement receptor gene, clustrin, uh, uh, is involved in, in protecting the brain through the uh, inflammatory response the complement, the classical complement system. Uh, and what this is telling us is that inflammation is, is a core, a primary event in the disease uh, uh, production. We had known for a number of years that uh, you see markers of inflammation within the brains of Alzheimer's individuals. We thought this was secondary to the amyloid plaques, for example. Uh, but this appears now to be a primary element in disease production. The other element is, is cholesterol. We see a lot more genes involved in 
uh, cholesterol and sterol, and, and, and we really don't know what they are doing, but they, we do know that they are playing a crucial role in disease development. Well, that's fantastic. So it looks like we really are getting a step closer, perhaps, to understanding more about what's going on in Alzheimer's and and perhaps eventually we'll find some new treatments and ways of preventing it. Thank you, Julie. That was Professor Julie Williams from Cardiff University, where she's been identifying the genetic factors in the most common causes of dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Thanks, Helen. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking about brain diseases this week. If you have any questions for us, our email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can Twitter at us. At Naked Scientist is the address. Right, let's go back to Ben Vowsler, who has managed to find a volunteer, that, that was Mira, to volunteer her body and her brain for our kitchen science experiment. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. Today I'm having to cope without Dave, but I do have a very willing victim, sorry, volunteer, Mira Senthalingam. Hello, Mira. Hello. Now, you've seen this experiment done before, haven't you? Yeah, but a while ago. So they, you might have an idea as to what's happening, but... Hopefully it will still be a bit of a surprise. So if you could come with me over to this doorway, then we can get you set up. Okay. So you need to stand in the doorway, facing into the room. Now this door is actually quite narrow, which is kind of perfect for us, because you don't want to have to lift your arms too much. If your doorway is a lot wider, then it might work better to get somebody to put their foot behind the door and just make the right size space between the door frame and the door itself. But here there's maybe six inches either side of your hands, so that's pretty much perfect. you feel comfortable standing in a doorway? Yeah, as comfortable as you can be in a doorway. (laughs) And now the next thing to do is put your arms down by your sides and then just turn your hands out and place the backs of your hands against the doorway. So they're level with your hips and pushing out on the door. Okay. Now, here's the tricky bit. What I need you to do now is to push outwards on the doorframe as hard as you're comfortable with And you're going to have to do this for about a minute. So when you're ready, start pushing. Okay. Well, I can see from your face that you are genuinely putting some effort in here. Now, the thing with this is initially it doesn't feel too bad. You're just pushing out against a doorway and nothing really feels like it's happening. But then after probably about this much time, it actually starts to get quite uncomfortable. But don't stop. Do keep pushing. How are you feeling? Uncomfortable, but I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm concentrating. (laughs) Well, we still have to go for a a little bit longer yet, so I may as well distract you by explaining what's going on in your brain. Now, your brain sends messages to different groups of muscles, telling some to relax and some to contract, in order to create the movement that you need. Right now, certain muscle groups will be contracting as hard as they can to try and push out against the door, but obviously they're not doing very well unless you have a very flimsy house, in which case you may have broken your own doorway. How are you feeling now? Um, it's quite painful actually and is it okay that my arms are actually shaking a little bit? (laughs) The shaking I think is just evidence that you're really putting in the effort that we need. I think you've probably had long enough now so what I need you to do when I say go I need you to step forward and just relax your arms completely. So you ready? Go. Okay. (laughs) My hands. Okay that's quite cool. (laughs) Um, You do look a bit like you're sleepwalking now as your arms appear to be stuck out off their own accord. But how does it feel? 
Um, it feels completely normal. Like, it doesn't feel like my arms have raised at all. It just feels like they're just dangling and then I can actually just happen to see them in front of my face. <laughs> and normally, if you were to hold your arms out in front of you, it would actually take some effort. But does this position feel like you're totally relaxed and this is where your arms are supposed to be? Yeah, basically as if I was in a swimming pool or something and my hands were just sitting on top of the water. That's what it feels like. Well, what's actually happening to your arms has, until very recently, been a bit of a mystery. Back in the 1920s, people knew about this experiment, but they assumed that it was all to do with the spinal cord because there are nerve clusters that control the length of muscle. And so they assumed that the spine was involved. But now, in a very new paper that came out in September in the journal Brain Research, Amy Parkinson and her colleagues have actually done this very experiment inside a brain scanner to have a look at what's going on. Now, they compared scans of people making this movement on purpose to people doing it exactly how we've just done, pressing against something for a while and then this involuntary movement happening afterwards. If people had been right in the 20s and it was a spinal cord-only issue, then you'd see very little brain activity or certainly nothing significant compared to normal. But what they found was significant brain activity in the areas that were concerned with making and planning movements. And they found this activity just before the movement happened. So this wasn't a response to the fact that your arm was moving of its own accord. This really was the effect that made it happen. They also did find some activity in the brain that happened after the movement, and this suggests that that was a response to the fact that your arm was involuntarily moving. One of the bits they did find quite a lot of activity in is called the cerebellum. Now, this is what's responsible for motor learning and error correction, so it must have learnt while you were pushing out that your arm was apparently supposed to be shorter than it really is, and that's why the muscles contracted and your arms rose up at their own accord. This is very similar to an experiment that we did a little while ago on The Naked Scientist, where we put these special prismatic glasses on. These shift your vision 10 degrees to one side, and then when you try and throw and catch a ball, initially you're totally useless, until your cerebellum kicks in and corrects for the fact that when you thought you'd thrown it in one direction, your eyes tell you you've thrown it in a different direction. After a little while, you can throw and catch because the cerebellum has done its job. I actually remember having a go on that around the office and it did adapt really quickly. I was really surprised. It's strange and frustrating when you take the glasses off again and find that you can't throw and catch for a little while. Yeah, but um, I'm not amazing at it anyway, so it's all right. (laughs) Hopefully Dave will be back in action for another Kitchen Science next week. So some very recent research shows that certain areas of the brain light up in response to this sort of involuntary activity. Cutting edge kitchen science indeed. And we'd like to say a huge thank you to Dr Ellie Domet at the Open University and Professor Patrick Haggard at UCL for helping Ben out with this week's experiment. And if you'd like to tell us about your experimental experiences, you can tweet us now at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Helen. That's, that's a really good experiment. I remember doing that when I was at school. It's quite funny because I got an email here from John Kay who says, you know, how do I find out which arm is stronger? He says, bit of a stupid and random question. Been bugging me for a while. When I link my fingers together so my arms are connected and I try and push or pull them against each other to find out which arm's strongest, my hands stay in the middle and my stronger arm never seems to get anywhere. Why is this? Is it something to do with my brain? And is there some evolutionary benefit in making this happen? I suppose it's a good question, isn't it? Could you not work out which arm is stronger by arm wrestling someone with each arm or something? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that the reason for this is that the nervous system is wired up so that you balance out movements so that if a muscle 
gets made longer than it thinks it should be, you have an organ called a spindle, which is inside the muscle, which signals length of the muscle. And if that gets stretched, it feeds back onto the motor nerve supplying the muscle and increases the firing of the motor nerve, making the muscle get a bit shorter. And so if you have two antagonistic muscles, one hand and the other hand, pulling against each other, then one's going to win a bit and that's going to make the muscle on the other arm get a bit stronger. Then that will pull back and the other one will win a bit and that will make the muscle on that side pull harder and so on. It will just do a sort of tug of war so you won't go anywhere because the the brain is set up. You, you, You want your fingers in the middle. The only way to do this objectively is exactly what you suggest. You'd need to have some kind of machine which you could arm wrestle and it was connected to a torque meter and it could work out exactly how much force a muscle group was was able to apply objectively with one arm and then the other arm. And what you will find is that there will be a disparity because the arm that you use preferentially for most things therefore will probably, through just use, have slightly stronger muscles and therefore it will be slightly stronger, your dominant arm, perhaps your right arm if you're right-handed. For me, it would definitely be my right arm. We've had a question from Peter in God Manchester and he says, um, I find that after I've been through a period of stress, I somehow my memory isn't as good as it was before and he wonders if that's something that's a general problem or if it's something specific to him julie have you got any thoughts on that one? Oh, right i i think it probably is 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 a general problem um learning uh, you, you probably uh, need to have um well activated nerve cells to 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 create the synapses to to learn new information uh so i think this this probably could be affected by stress but uh um, it, it, so I would say it's a, it's a general problem. Because one other thing that people have realised is that the hormones that make us stress, cortisol, there are receptors for those for those chemicals in the brain, and they do seem to cause damage if they're present chronically to those parts of the brain, particularly the hippocampus, which is concerned with making memories. So maybe that's that's part of the manifestation, mm. Julie. Well, we we also know that um, people who have uh, had uh, major depression uh, throughout their lifetime or uh, uh, bipolar disorder uh, do tend to have a highly, a higher, slightly higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease at later life. Th- this could be due to the medication they take or it could be due to the actual process of uh, of, of, uh, of depression. So, so there are some, some uh, areas of support for that. Indeed. Thank you, Julie. Um, Question for you, Ed. Matthew says, are stem cells an option for treating brain diseases? Um, On the subject of diseased brains, can you tell me whether stem cells are in fact an option in potentially treating some diseases? And if so, how would that actually work? Well, that's a a big question. And uh, the answer is that uh, there's a lot of promise in stem cells, but we're probably several years away from being able to see uh, the benefits of, of the research that's going on. You mentioned at the beginning of the program that brain cells, once they're dead, they're gone and they can't be replaced from within the brain because brain cells don't divide. Um, And the hope of stem cell research um, in neurodegenerative diseases is that uh, you can take these stem cells which are capable still of dividing and becoming any kind of cell they like, put them into the brain, and they'll then regrow and replace the cells that have died. Um, But as you also mentioned earlier on, the brain's a phenomenally complex thing and and performing its functions normally depends not just on the cells being there, but on the connections, the billions and billions of connections that there are between the brain cells. 
and re-educate, even if you could get the brain cells, the, the stem cells to uh, differentiate into neurons that behaved completely normally, uh, you'd probably never be able to get them to make all the right connections. So there'd certainly be a lot of work training the, the stem cells to make the right connections and behave the same way as the cells around them. Yep. So there's a bit of a hill to climb there. Um, and just because we're running out of time, uh, Helen. We've got another question for Julie, and Tom Kinula wants to know, um, Alzheimer's just gets worse, doesn't it? Fortunately, yes. I mean, it, it, it is a terminal illness. Uh, it it um, it's usually uh, lasts, on average, between five and eight years uh, from diagnosis. Absolutely, and hopefully... Some of Julie's research will help us to understand more about that terrible disease, Alzheimer's. I've got another question here from Chris in Cardiff, and he wants to know, is the blood-brain barrier real? Uh, the answer is yes, absolutely it's real. Um, people talk about this blood-brain barrier, this notional structure which in some way keeps the brain isolated, cocooned inside you biochemically and physically, away from what's going around in your bloodstream. And it's absolutely true. The history of the blood-brain barrier goes back about 100 and something years to a guy called Paul Ehrlich, who was a German scientist. Um, he was interested in dyes initially. He used to inject dyes into animals and then see which bits of the body got stained. And he was intrigued to see that when he put dyes into the bloodstream, much of the time the, the dye did not get into the brain. And so he realised there must be some kind of barrier separating what goes around in the bloodstream from the delicate tissue inside the brain. We now understand a lot more about what this blood-brain barrier is. It's a bit contrived, but basically what's going on is that you have special junctions between cells that line the surfaces of the brain and separate the brain tissue from blood vessels. And these cells make very tight junctions, that's what they're called, and this effectively means that there's a barrier, which is the membranes of those cells separating what's in the bloodstream from what's in the brain tissue. And what this means is that certain substances can move very easily into the brain, especially if they're substances that dissolve well in fat, because of course the membranes of cells are made of fat. So lipid-soluble drugs like heroin, cigarettes, nicotine, cocaine, they're very oily molecules. They go into the brain beautifully, and that's why they, they tend to uh, be, be addictive, because they move preferentially into fatty tissue like the brain. Other substances, which don't dissolve in fat very well, don't get into the brain very well. But there are some exceptions. And those exceptions are things that the brain needs. So sometimes, if it needs a certain chemical which wouldn't be able to diffuse in very easily... It has special transporters which can scrutinise what's going past in the blood, grab goodies that it wants and move those into the brain. And this is what people found when they were giving the drug L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease. L-DOPA is an amino acid, dissolves in water, doesn't dissolve in brain tissue very well, but it gets into the brain much better than it should do. And the reason is there are these special transporters that get hold of it and shove it into the brain. So from the blood-brain barrier to another part that's connected to our brains but isn't actually part of our brains, our eyes. And this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. This week has an eye-watering theme. Hello, this is Paul from New Zealand. My question is, would it be possible to have a coil of thin wire in one's spectacle frames which would attract floaters in the eye to the extremities of the eye so that they would not float across the eye and be a distraction. And here's our expert to tackle the ocular problem. This is Dr. James Johnson from Southern California. I have a unique practice called Vitreous Floater Solutions where I treat eye floaters. Well, floaters are actually very common. It is an age-related phenomenon for the most part, especially as we get into the 40s and older. And what it is is the clear gel in the back of the eye starts to condense and coalesce and cloud over. And so what the person sees will be spots and threads and shadowy clouds 
or cobweb-type shadows which move around in the vision. Most of these floaters are considered benign, but it is usually worth getting a good eye examination to make sure that it's not part of something more serious, such as a retinal tear or a retinal detachment. The common advice that most people are given is to just learn to live with it and hope that it will go away. Now, the traditional uh, treatment, as I said, is just to learn to live with it. There is actually a surgical intervention, a surgical procedure called a vitrectomy, and it involves putting small instruments inside the eye to essentially suck out the gel in its entirety and replace it with salt water. But as you can imagine, it's invasive. It has its complications, commonly cataract and, and sometimes even retinal detachment. As far as your reader's question about putting a coil of wire, it reminds me of a, of a Steve Martin movie called The Jerk, where he did put a little handle, a little wire on some glasses, and, and in the movie, everybody got cross-eyed. Well, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, there's nothing you can really do to distract yourself from those floaters because they are inside the eye and they're constantly there. I have an unusual situation where I have a practice entirely devoted to treating floaters, and I use a laser. So I use a highly focused laser on the floater material itself and vaporize it, convert it to a gas, the gas goes away, and the floaters are gone. Floaters can also be made of undergraded cell material, very occasionally red blood cells, but mostly it's uneven bits of the gel or vitreous humour inside the eye. Sadly, their makeup means that a coil of wire, even magnetised, would not have an effect on these fragments or gooey bits. On our forum, RD also pointed out the wonders of a vitrectomy. Just don't look too closely at the pictures. Well, next week, you'll need to adjust your television sets for this question. Hi, I'm Andrew Hawthorne from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and my question is, why does the television signal improve when you hold the aerial? Why does the signal improve when you're holding the aerial, usually in another room or standing on the end of a diving board over a shark-infested pool? If you have the answer, then give us a hand with Question of the Week. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can write it on our forum, which is thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. And you can tune into Question of the Week as a podcast in its own right through our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW or it's on iTunes. That's such a good question. I've had that, you know, when you're touching the aerial and it gets better and then you think, I've got it right now, and you move away and the blooming thing goes all fuzzy again. Very annoying. I've got a question here from John who wants to know if the brain rewires around damage, are are those rewired areas also degraded? Well, what he's referring to is a a concept called plasticity. And this is where nerve cells can um, change the connections they make from one set of nerve cells to the other set of nerve cells. And in this way, there's a limited capacity. If a bit of the brain is damaged so that signals can no longer go through, then other networks or other weaker connections can be strengthened to help to bypass that blockage. There's no degradation that goes on. There's merely a strengthening, a reinforcement or a bypass via other bits of the brain to get round an obstruction or a problem which was, was holding things up. Anyway, that's it. We've run out of time. I have to say a big thank you to Randy Lewis, Edward, David Braith and Julie Williams for our guests this week and to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. Next week is our question and answer show, so phone in with all of your wonderful questions from the world of science. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. 
the nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.